There's this wonderful story, I've shared it a number of times over the years, but years ago, there was a theologian, a very witty guy, uh, by that I mean he, he had a, a bit of a, a way to make comments into the public sphere that ruffled feathers, but he was just, he was smart, he, he knew how to do it well. His name was G.K. Chesterton. Well, the newspapers uh, wrote uh, into the, the papers, they invited comments to be sent back to try to answer this one question one time, and the question is, what's the greatest problem in the world? What do you think, readers of this newspaper, is the greatest problem in the world? And G.K. Chesterton, being G.K. Chesterton, wrote back his witty response, but he wrote this. Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. You know, to watch the news cycle on any given day is uh, to be very keenly aware that we live in a fallen world. It, it's hard to deny it. You know, we, we live in Chicago. I remember when I lived overseas, and I, I would tell people, I lived in Thailand for quite for a while, and I, you know, people would say, where are you from? I'd say Chicago. And the first thing they'd do is they go, oh, pow, pow. And Chicago is known as a city of violence. Everywhere I go, whenever I would say I was from Chicago, that's the one thing they knew about Chicago. And that's a, that's a sad thing for our own city because there's wonderful things about Chicago. And yet even living in Chicago, we recognize that we live in a fallen world. Hardship takes place. Violence takes place. Corruption takes place. Many in the world, when they look to try to solve and they try to say, what's the root of this? How, how, how do we get here? The world today says, look to the systems. It's broken systems and broken groups of people. And if we can just correct those groups of people and if we can correct those systems, then we've solved the root of the issue. But Christians standing on the word of God know that it's not just broken systems. That's not the issue. You can fix all the systems with new solutions and then you just find that the new solutions are just as bad, if not worse, than the previous solutions you had. The problem is not, solution, is not uh, the systems. The problem runs deeper. It's the human heart. The human heart is broken. It's corrupted. It's, it's wicked. It's rebellious towards God. And until we find a way to deal with the brokenness of the human heart, then all we're doing in all of our solutions is just kind of pushing problems around one way to another. We're starting this new sermon series today, and uh, the sermon series is called Great Stories. We just wrapped up nine months of studying 1 Corinthians. Now we're in this sermon series called Great Stories. And what we're trying to do in Great Stories is look back over the summer through a number of great stories from the Old Testament that have shaped our Christian story. And not only the larger biblical story, but, but have shaped you and me as followers of Jesus. This is our family heritage. This is who we are. This is where we've come from. If you're a Christian, you've been adopted into the family of all of these stories that we're going to be read about over the summer. Today, we're going to kick off by looking at Adam and Eve. And then we're going to look at stories like Moses and Joseph, like Ruth and Esther, and many more over the course of the summer. And our hope is that as we study these, that, that we find that our, our faith in Christ is deepening, our resolve in Christ is deepening, as we get to know the flawed men and women that have gone before us and the hope they had and what God would do to save them. Well, today, we're in the story of Adam and Eve. And, uh, you know, this is an interesting one because I think a lot of folks, maybe even non-believers in society, know of something of this story. They know that this is in the Bible. Whether or not they believe it's true or not, they know it's in the Bible. They know a little bit about it, and maybe if you're in this room, you know a little bit about it as well. Now, I certainly won't be able to get to every detail of this. There are books this thick written on every single word in this chapter. Um, but one thing we do know is that as Christians, this is a historical account. So this is not a fairy tale. This is not just mythology. This is history. 
And one of the reasons we know it's history is because uh, in the New Testament, we know Jesus' lineage traces back to Adam and Eve. In the Gospel of Luke, it traces all the way back to Adam and Eve. Paul, in Romans chapter 5, actually uses the historical Adam as a basis to teach about the historical Jesus and what's taken place. The Bible assumes that the historical Adam and Eve is the actual history of the world. And today what I want to do as we look at the story is I want to look at the, the nature and the doctrine of sin. And as we do that, I want to look at sin from a number of different angles because this is the passage where sin really first comes into fruition in the world that we live in today. So we're going to look at four aspects of sin today. The first aspect is this. Sin is alluring. It allures us. Sin is alluring. This chapter begins with the serpent. Okay, Now, this is an interesting character because when you get to Genesis chapter 3, this is the first we hear of this serpent. We don't know anything about him before there. We find out this serpent is speaking. And the chapter doesn't give us any details as to why he's there. Why did God make a garden and permit the serpent to be there? This chapter does not attempt to answer that, and so I'm not going to try to attempt to answer that specifically in this passage today. What we do know is that he's there. And the best guess by putting scripture together of who this serpent is is that this is the devil who's taken on the body of a serpent in the garden. So the, the devil has incarnated himself, and he's now tempting Adam and Eve to do something. Elsewhere in scripture, we read that Satan is referred to as a serpent. We've seen that in a handful of passages. Satan is referred to as a serpent. I think when it does that, it's going right back to this passage. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to what the serpent says. The serpent was more crafty, it's an interesting word, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say... That's an interesting little phrase that he uses there. And it, it's, it's very beguiling of the serpent, isn't it? He's undercutting. Think of what that question is doing. He's undercutting what the father has said. I've got three little girls. And if another grown-up came to my little girls and questioned my authority towards my little girls and a, a good rule that I had put in place to care for my little girls and said, did your dad really say that to you? Do you know how angry I would be at that person for undermining my authority as their parent? What right do they have to sow seeds of doubt that my word is not, is not safe and right and true for my children? The interesting thing about Adam and Eve is, up until this point, if you read Genesis chapter 2, everything in their life is just about perfect. They've got a, this intimate union with, with God where they're walking and they, with God and they know him. They're thinking God's thoughts. They didn't even have the, the concept of sin in their mind. Adam and Eve's, their mind was such that to wake up was to experience the glory of God, to enjoy nature and the peace of God with all of creation. They had peace with it. There was no death to be even known of. It didn't even cross their mind that they would even break God's commands. They were in union with God. They had right relationship with each other. Their marriage was beautiful. The first relationship God makes is a, is a marriage. It's interesting. That's also the first thing Satan goes after is a marriage. His plays haven't changed all that much. Their relationship with all of creation was beautiful. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam was busy. And what, what did God have him doing? Going across all of the creation, naming all of the animals. They had right relationship with God, right relationship with creation, Right relationship in this marriage? Had no sin ever taken place? You know, theologians have guessed what would have happened in society, but it would have been a beautiful society. They would have had children. They would have built society. They, they, and it, it would have been a society where, where God would have been the ultimate governor over this thing. 
And everything would have been the way God had actually designed it to be. And into that story, Satan steps in and he whispers into Eve's ear. He says, did God actually say? Look at what the serpent says in verses four to five. The serpent says to the woman, you know, God had said, if you eat of the tree, you will die. You will surely die. And then he says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's now putting this little bug in her ear. He's saying, you know, God's holding back the best from you. You know, you see God's law, but actually he's just limiting what you could be. There's better for you. You'll find more joy. You'll find more peace. You'll find more happiness. You'll find, you'll find that you actually were made to just go a little beyond what the laws God has. He's holding back from you the best of what you could have. The true life, if you really want life, this is what Satan's saying. If you really want life, you want true freedom, you want true joy, you gotta just step a little beyond the limits God has put in you. Did God really say He's alluring them. He's, 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 he's making sin to look like it's some shiny object. If only they could have it, it would bring them life. Did God really say? This is, the, this is the phrase of our day, isn't it? Did God really say that we're not to covet? That we're not to steal? That we're not to commit adultery? Did he really say that? Does it really matter? Did God really say that we're to keep a Sabbath once a week? Maybe a little closer to home for a number in the room. Does it really matter? Is it that important? Did God really say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and, and no one comes to the Father but through him? Did he really, was he that explicit? Wouldn't it be nice if we could just blur those boundaries just a little bit more? Did God really say that there is a hell and that that is a place where wrath is poured out on sinners for all eternity as the just payment for sin? Oh, there's a better vision than that. Did God really say that? Water that one down just a little bit. Did God really say that marriage is between one man and one woman for life? That seems so old-fashioned. Did God really say that? Did God really say that sex outside of marriage is forbidden and will sow seeds of destruction in your life? Did he, did he, did, I mean, did he really say that sex outside of marriage is forbidden? Did God really say? We're living in a moment right now in our culture where did God really say is, is quite literally the philosophy of the day. It's to, it's to challenge the, the status quo, is to challenge the traditions of the past, is to challenge the traditions that have been passed down to us from generations, particularly the Christian ones that have come from the biblical traditions that have shaped the society that we're living in. Did God really say? And underneath that question, and even underneath Eve's entertainment of that question, is an attitude and a posture of of considering that just maybe, just maybe, there's better for us than what God has said. It's a posture that doesn't just accept our creaturely status before the creator and just accept, like my, like my little girls, like with the love I have for my little girls, that, that what I want for them is to just accept the laws I have for them because it's gonna give them life. I and mean, if they were to question that, to, to know, whenever my, my daughters question my authority, it, I'm looking at them making bad decisions. Now, why Don't make that decision. My rules are good for you. It's the same thing. To have a posture and an attitude that questions God is to reveal that we don't quite trust God. How did Jesus respond when he was in this situation? You know, Jesus was tempted three times by the devil. 
And three times, Jesus responded. Each time he was tempted by the devil, he responded, it is written. He quoted scripture. The devil was trying to allure him with something. You can be famous. You can have all the power you need. You can, you know, you can have angels at your disposal at any moment. And each time the devil showed up to allure him with another facet of what could be his if he stepped outside of God's will for his life, Jesus responded very clearly, it is written. And he quoted scripture. And this is exactly what every faithful Christian should do whenever they sense in their heart that they're being tempted by the allurement of sin, something that's testing them to see would they go beyond God's boundaries. They're to, to say, it's written. Each of us are tempted in our own ways with our own unique sins. For some in the room, you're tempted with very overt sins. I'm gonna pick on one just to kind of say it out loud because I think it provides us with a little bit of a case study here. Some in this room might be like a man who's tempted to commit adultery on his wife. You know, that's an overt sin. We know that's unbiblical. We know that's not good. Frankly, if you have a moment of clarity, you just know that's not good. It's not hard to, to, to know that that's gonna sow seeds of destruction in everyone's life around you. That's gonna ruin things. But how does that start? It starts with just the subtlest, alluring idea that's placed in front of us by the serpent. You begin to entertain the thought, and you know it's something off in the distance, but in your brain, you play it over, and you can just see how this would have worked out for Eve. The idea's there, and now she's, could it be? Is it better? Is God holding out on me? Is there something better than what God has planned for me? All of a sudden, you, you, you start justifying the thoughts that you're having, and, and, and it's just a slippery slope. And, and where, does that, where does that overt sin need to be nipped out? The second you see it, the second you see even the tempting thought in your mind, even the, the subtlest allurement towards a forbidden object, you need to behave like Christ, who said, it is written, God's word is good. Blessed is the man whose way is blameless, who walks in the law of the Lord. And we need to memorize scripture like that, Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who keep all of his testimonies, so that we remember that's the blessed life. Now, some other sin is not quite as overt as a man committing adultery. Maybe the sin that you struggle with is gossip. That's a deadly sin. That's a real deadly one. That's one that will sow unbelievable devastation, not only in your own life, in your family's life, in your, in your network's life, but in the life of your church, in the bride of Christ. We tend to rank sins in all these different ways, and we make our pet sins the one that we're actually guilty of right down to the bottom of the totem pole. But when you really get a clear mind, you think about these sins and what Jesus says about them, you realize they're all deadly. This is why the, the consequences of sin is death, because they're deadly. Think of gossip for a moment. What is gossip? Gossip is the de desire to be like God over someone else's life. That's what it is. Because you're standing in a place of omniscience. You know their situation, you know that person's heart. You know their motivations. You know their circumstances. You know what you would have done if you were in the exact same circumstance because you're God and you know these things, right? And so what, it, what is gossip but the desire to be God? And so what does the gossip need to do? The second they start to, the second they're in the room and they, they say, I've got something I could say, they need to go, it is written, do not be a gossip. Do not gossip. That's literally Paul's exact words. Do not gossip. It is written, just like Christ. The allure of sin is that there's something better on the other side of it. The allure of sin is that it will make you feel different or think different or be more powerful or look better in others' eyes. And the Christian needs to constantly go back to it and say, it is written. Sin is alluring. 
and we need to cut it off the second we start to see it. Number two, sin is deceitful. So sin is alluring, but sin is also deceitful. Look at verses six to seven. Let me read this again to you. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Things turned pretty bad pretty quickly after that. Eve's temptation. We're looking at how sin is deceitful, okay? Why was sin, why was Eve tempted? Why, why was Adam tempted? Well, it was because it looked alluring. It looked like it was something that, in fact, it wasn't. It was like the poisonous fruit that when you take a bite of it inside, it's actually been poisoned, and it's only going to bring them death. It's interesting. At the end of this passage, right away, as soon as they do this, they've already lost their innocence. By the, by the end of verse 7, they're already sewing fig leaves on, 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 as clothing because they're ashamed of their nakedness before each other. Think of that level of peace they had in the way God had created them. There was literally no shame, so much so that they were unashamed to be completely naked before each other in God's creation. It was a whole different environment that they were in. No longer was innocent obedience assumed. Everything had to be questioned. Why would God forbid something so beautiful as that fruit on that tree? Three things we see from Eve. Number one, we see that she thought the tree was good for food. This is how she's justifying it now, right? She's been tempted by the allurement of it. Now she's justifying. What did she say? The tree is good for food. Well, this is a temptation of practicality. This is one of the ways we all justify our sin. It's, it's practical. She's saying, I need food. Now, remember, God's given them every other fruit of the garden. There is no lack of food. And my guess is that their bodies would have, what they would have done with food is that they would, their bodies were so much more healthy than ours are now. They would have processed food in a whole better way than we do now. They didn't have any shortage of food. And yet, here she is thinking, well, I do need food. That one, that one, that one would, you know, practically speaking, <laughs> it's fruit. Well, I need some food. Don't I need that practicality? Practicality is one of the main reasons that uh, many will fall into sin. One practical one that I see that play out all the time, young men and women who are either engaged or dating, and I'll, I'll come and I'll have a conversation with them, and I'll say, hey, you know, it's not God's best design for you to be living together before marriage. And what's the first response they'll say? It's cheaper. It's the sin of practicality. Sin of practicality. This is exactly what Eve is doing. She's, she's, she's justifying Sinful behavior because of practicality. Isn't God a practical God? Number two, it was a delight to the eyes. This is the, the temptation of sensuality. It was a delight to the eyes. The fruit was captivating. It was beautiful. Surely God wouldn't have made something that beautiful that's forbidden, right? Look at the, look at the fruit. I mean, just to, just to see the fruit. I don't know what kind of fruit it was, but, but it just looked like it was. It looked like it was meant to be eaten, why would God make something that looks like it was meant to be eaten if I'm not supposed to eat the fruit that's on that tree? We live in a hyper-sensualized culture. Hyper-sensualized. And I'm not just talking about sexuality. I mean, I mean all of sensuality. All of our senses are constantly firing, especially because of the amount of screens that we have all across us. We're, we're bombarded with marketing that gets all of our senses just to the fullest extent. And then you become numb and you need, you need heightened sensuality to keep up with it. You need to keep chasing after more and more. And what is it? It's just, you know, it looks appealing. It seems appealing. It, 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 it tickles my ears in just the right way, and, and I, I, should just, I should chase after that thing over there. 
It's the sin of sensuality. It's exactly what Eve tried to justify her own sin with. But hidden in it was the, the poison of death. Number three, it was desired to make one wise. This is the temptation to be God. We've seen the, the temptation of practicality, the temptation of sensuality, and now the temptation to be God. The Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to be a wise person, you want to have your life in order, you, you want to be the kind of person that is respected for their, their knowledge of how you ought to live the right way and, and, and to have a fruitful life, the beginning of that. You can't even enter into that life without the knowledge of God, without the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. And what's Eve being offered here? She is being offered a wisdom detached from God's word. That's exactly what it is. The Satan's saying, you can have even more wisdom than you have right now. You'll be wiser. And maybe he even threw in godliness in there. You'll be, you could learn to even be a more godly person. You, you could be the most God made you to be just by going just outside of God's boundaries. Just detach yourself from the word of God or maybe even parts of the word of God, right? You don't, just a few parts of it. Detach yourself from those, and then you'll be even more wise. Because keep in mind, this was written thousands of years ago. We've learned a lot of things since this was written, right? We're a lot smarter of a people now than when they wrote this. Certainly, we've got some new wisdom we can add to God's word, or some things we can take out of it. This is a temptation that we have today, the temptation to be God and change God's word. Now, Eve was deceived, the New Testament affirms this in us, says Eve was deceived. Adam was not deceived. Adam just willfully rebelled. This is what New Testament teaches us in 2 Timothy, I think it is. Adam just willfully rebelled. He was standing there next to his wife. His job was to protect her, was to guard his wife. The serpent came around the back door. He should have gone through the protector, but he came directly to Eve. But Adam was right there with her the whole time. He didn't defend his wife. Man, your job is to protect your family. Protect your family. The, 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 the words that come into your family, the books that come into your family, the physical enemies that come into your family, you are the protector of your family. Adam willfully disobeyed. He saw the fruit, knowing full well the direct rebellion and wicked, wickedness this would bring in. And he took the fruit and he just ate it. Willful rebellion. Just like Eve, sin always promises what it cannot deliver. It deceives us. All sin, think of where you are in your life. Think of whatever you're tempted to, and we all have them. Whatever your temptation is, maybe it's a temptation towards control. You're the, you're the person who you want to micromanage all things. You, you, you need to know what you need to have your hand in everything. Maybe you're prone to anger. Maybe you're prone to lust. What is, what is all of this sin? It's a deception. It's something that's built up. If you could just have this, then, then you'll be satisfied. Then you'll know what's going on. Then you can have control over things. Then you can have what you really want and you'll be happy. But it doesn't. It's just, it's a wrapper. It's a facade on what is actually rotten, empty fruit. And, and what the Christian needs to do is learn. Look, this is the practical step. Ready? The practical step is every Christian needs to develop a lifestyle of regularly mining their heart for the things that they're being tempted by. Because we're all constantly being tempted all the time, especially in the culture we're in today, with the amount of contact we have with our, with, it's just, we're everywhere. And the regular practice of every Christian is to mine your heart. You, you go before God like this. You say, God, I'm, I'm saved by grace. You have saved me and you are doing a great work in my life. But, but I know I'm being tempted by stuff right now. What am I being tempted by? And you linger there. You linger in that space until God brings something to your heart and your mind and you think, you know, I was tempted. I am being tempted by that. 
I see it. And then when you start to sense where it is, this is it's so powerful and important. When you start to see it, like let's say for example that you do that and you say, am I overly controlling, right? Then you say, okay, Lord. No, then you don't just move on from there. You say, reveal it to me in full, God. You linger. You wait in prayer on your knees. Show me more of it. And here's what he's gonna do. He's gonna bring to you five, six examples over the last week or two that are sinful behaviors you took. You're gonna start thinking back to conversations you had and you're gonna go, I was controlling. You're gonna start thinking back to that, that, that conversation you had over on this side and you're, I, I did it again. And you're gonna start to have a reality check of the work that is still to get done in your life of sanctification. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus has forgiven it all. I have learned this, and this is such an important kind of tip of Christianity. The deeper you go into your repentance and you allow God to reveal how far it is, the more you get all of its little tentacles, the more you understand the gospel. The more you see the beauty of what God had to do in order to forgive you of that sin. The more you labor in prayer and you go, oh, it's worse than I care to admit. I've got to call that person and say, I'm sorry now. I didn't even think of that in the moment. And then you say, but before I even do that, I need to thank you for forgiveness. I thank you for the gospel because those tentacles of sin go so deep into us. All of sin is deceptive. It's, just, it's promising you something that it cannot deliver in deliver on. And the moment you see it, we need to ask God, remove it. That's why a life of repentance is so important. Number three, sin will be judged. Sin will be judged. We've seen that sin is alluring. We've seen that it's deceptive. That wants to take us down. But sin will also be judged. Psalm 89 says this, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. I love that verse. Good memory verse for you. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. God is just. I say this regularly, but we need to be reminded of this. It's very important to know that we serve a just God. That one day, every wrong thing will be held in account. We'll go before a just judge, and he will judge every single person for all of their behavior. And praise God that he's just and that he is a judge. Because, this is important, because in this world... Sometimes God's justice works its way out into our life and in the life of others in real practical ways. For example, let's say someone steals something and they get caught and they go to jail. That's God's justice working its way out through the deacons of the law. That's Romans chapter 13. The lawgiver, the, 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 the police officers and the governors of our, of our day, they are the deacons of God's justice. Romans chapter 13. They're working out God's justice by putting the evildoer in jail. But sometimes... Thieves don't get caught. Sometimes the wrongs that you've had done to you, no one knows about except for God. And in reality, those are oftentimes a lot of the deepest wounds that many of us have because you feel like no one can ever really know these wounds that you carry around with you. But praise God, our God has seen it all, and he is a just judge. While the judges of this earth might get it wrong, and while the judges of this earth might not ever know, our just God stands over everything, and every knee will ultimately bow in judgment before our holy God. So he's just. What do we do with God's law? God's law is the plumb line of justice. That means, how do we know what we're going to be judged on? It's God's law. It's what he said is, is what we're going to be judged on. Psalm 119, that's why I quoted that early. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek them with his whole heart. 
If we choose to rebel and break God's commands, what we're doing is we're heaping up judgment before a holy God. That's what we do. Even our temptations. Did you know that we're held to account because of our, thin, our sinful thoughts? That's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, if you even look at a woman with lust in your eye, you've already committed the sin of adultery. If you have anger in your heart towards a brother, you're already guilty of murder. You're guilty before a whole, because of our thought life, because out of the heart flow all kinds of wicked deeds. It all starts here. And so even the, the condition of our heart is gonna be held in judgment before God. Think of how deep our, our, our guilt goes before a holy God. To the woman, what's her judgment for breaking the law? God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you'll bring forth children. Your, your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. Talk about real life consequences. The pain of childbirth came to us as a consequence for Eve's sin. Now, why was that the case? It's an interesting one. Well, I think part of it is because childbearing is one of, it's not the only, it's not the, the, the core thing that makes a woman a woman, but it, it is historically one of the main things of what a woman does. And so part of that core identity, part of that huge thing that is a woman, what a woman does is, and now it's gonna be filled with pain. It's gonna be filled with tremendous pain. Secondly, her marriage will suffer. Her desire will be contrary to her husband. So much of marital problems that uh, we have to counsel through as pastors goes back to this verse. Women will have a desire to control their husbands and to usurp the husband's authority in their life. The husband has been made the head of the household, but women will desire to actually usurp that authority and control the head and, and, and lead the family instead of joyfully submitting to the husband's leadership. As, as, as partners, but submitting under his headship. And, and now, now God says, now where there used to be this, this beautiful design and Eve joyfully was underneath Adam's headship and, and he was leading sinlessly. There was no sin there. And, and they were this marriage that was just rocking it. Now she's gonna wanna exert control, but he's gonna have the ultimate word. Now they're gonna be fighting over it. Marriage gets broken. Marriage is gonna be hard. Talk about judgment. Then to Adam, he says, thorns and thistles, verse 18 and 19. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you the land. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken. What's he getting after? Man's core responsibility, work and provision for the family is gonna be full of pain and hardship. He goes to the woman, one of your core responsibilities is gonna be full of pain and hardship. He goes to the man, one of your core responsibilities is gonna be full of pain and hardship. Life is gonna be full of pain and hardship. And we know that we live in that world. There are sweet days where life is good, where work feels like it's just clicking, everything's good, but work is difficult. There are thorns and thistles. There are tough bosses. There are deadlines that make you stay up till the middle of the night. This is not the way it was supposed to be. All of this is consequence for sin. And of course, the maiden, maiden judgment was expulsion from the garden where they used to walk with God in the garden talk with him. It was beautiful. It was what we were made for, this beautiful enjoying of God and all of creation. Now they're expelled from the garden, no longer to actually walk in intimacy with God, but they're cut off from God. Many today want to take their chances. They hope that God will simply just turn a blind eye to their willful rebellion to God. They hope that at the end of the day, God's just a nice, cheery guy in the sky who's going to say, ah, come in. Not a big deal. Come on, enjoy heaven, right? Is that the God you want? Is that who you want, the cheery comedian in the sky who doesn't see sin, who says to the murderer, God, it doesn't matter that much. 
Get in here, big guy. Is that what you want? Praise God that's not who God is. Praise God that he's just. Romans chapter two, verse four says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? If you're in this room and you've never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of your sins, read that verse very carefully. God is being patient with you. He is being very patient with you in your sin because your sin is paving destruction in your life and everyone else's life around you. There are consequences for sin. The consequences for Eve and Adam's sin were tremendous and the consequences for your sin are tremendous as well. There is judgment, but God offers you forgiveness in the midst of the judgment that is rightfully yours for the consequences of your sins. There is hope. God does not leave them without hope. And that's the fourth point here. I wanna see this all through this chapter. The fourth one is that there is mercy that is offered to sinners like us. God offers mercy for sinners. I want to show you three ways he does this in this passage. Number one, look how tenderly he speaks to them when he shows up in the garden. Look at them. The first thing he says when he gets into the garden, after they've sinned, now remember, God is God. He's seen the whole thing. He, know, he knows it all. He's not asking this question wondering where they are hiding behind a tree. He sees them hiding behind the tree. This isn't about God figuring out where they are. But look how gentle he is. He walks to them, where are you? As a dad, I, I see so much fatherliness in that. Even when your kids are rebelling on my best days, on my best days, I wanna be, I wanna be tender with them in their rebellion. Now my patience is not as long as God's is. I have to watch my, my snappiness with my kids. But, but I know on my best days, even in the rebellion, I want to be tender with them because I love them. Even when they're fighting me, God's so tender with them. Church, know this. No matter how rebellious you have been, no matter what you have done, no matter how much you've broken God's word, no matter how far you've run from him, there's a tender father who's waiting at the end of the road for you. And he's waiting with arms open. Luke chapter 15, we looked at this as a prayer group this morning. The, the father, after the rebellious son takes his inheritance, runs off, Luke chapter 15, runs off, blows all the father's money in, in, in disrespectful living, in sinful living. And he comes, he comes home and rags to his father just as a shame-filled son. The father, when he sees the son coming over, he sprints to his son in an act that would have defied the culture of the day, he runs to his son and he embraces him. And that is the father that we serve, no matter how far you've run from him, no matter how much you didn't believe the word of God in the past, if you are ready to run to the father and accept Jesus Christ, he will receive you tenderly. He's tender with us. Number two, look at what he does at the end of this passage. Verse 22 is a fascinating little verse. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, he uses the, the us there. That's either a royal we, a royal plural, meaning oftentimes kings will refer to themselves in the plural in English language in that day, right? So he's referring to himself in the plural, or he's speaking among the angels. He's become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He's not speaking to like many gods. God has, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever, ever, and then he cast them out of the garden. What does that mean? God's looking at the situation. Well, now they're in brokenness with me. 
Now their, their relationship with me, their relationship with each other is broken, and they're still in the Garden of Eden, which means they have access to the Tree of Life, which means if they keep eating that, they're going to live forever in a broken state with me. And so that they won't have access to the Tree of Life, so that they will actually experience death and not forever be in brokenness with me, but so that I can set up a hope for them, I'm going to expel them so that they will one day have an opportunity to have their sins forgiven and have that relationship with God restored. See that even in the judgment, there is mercy and hope. Do you see God's wisdom here? Even in the judgment of being cast out, he's doing it with the desire that they'd come to faith. Some of you have experienced God's judgment in your life. You've experienced it in many different ways. You've got broken, maybe you have scars on your body to show it. You've got scars in your mind. Maybe you just, maybe actually this week you're coming in here and you're, you're in, what's in, what's in your head is, I did it again. I did it again. The same thing I don't want to do that I keep trying to get, get over and here I am, same problem. I did it again. And what you're living in, in some, in some ways, you know the consequences of your sin. You see it. You've seen it play out in your life. You know it's not good for you or for others in your life. That, do you know that sometimes God, in permitting you to go underneath the consequences of your own sin, is, is doing that in such a way so that you can experience the depth of how bad your sin is so that you'll come running back to the Father who can bring you out of that sin. He, so that you will, you will cling to the hope that he's offering you in Jesus Christ. The consequences of sin are deadly, but in that deadliness, he then offers you light. Lastly, I want you to look at verse 15. This is called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first hope of the gospel in all of scripture, Genesis chapter three, the very first hope of the gospel. As he's giving his consequence to the serpent, verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, the offspring of the woman will bruise the serpent's head, and you shall bruise his heel. The curse that was put upon the serpent includes that final destruction of the serpent by descendant of the woman. One day, the serpent will be crushed. This is Adam and Eve, the very beginning. One day, a descendant of the woman is going to come, and the serpent's going to bruise his heel. He's going to do something to the descendant of the woman that's going to come, and it's going to look like the descendant of the woman, the offspring of the woman, is done for. The serpent got him. But in and through that process, the descendant of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Jesus is the offspring of the woman who has come. And the serpent bit his heel when he, put him, when he had him on the cross. And the serpent in that moment thought, I've done it. I've done it. I've crushed the power that could, that could kill me once and for all. I've pinned him to a cross. He can't come back from this. But Jesus went through death and then rose from the grave on the third day. And in his resurrection, he crushed the serpent's head. He crushed him. He fulfilled Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And here's the hope of that. What that means is that for those who place their faith in Jesus, the serpent has no real power over you anymore anymore. It's done. It was crushed. He defeated him at the grave. This is what Satan is doing right now. This is what he's doing. He's like a, like an angry guy, an angry general who just got beaten in a war, who as he's dying is just throwing grenades in the air, hoping something is going to happen. But he's already been beaten. That's it. That's all he's got. He's just throwing wild grenades, hoping something sticks, but he knows that he's been beaten. The death blow has been struck. And so here we are, every once in a while we feel a little bit of a grenade go off, but we, we go, the war was won. The war was won at the cross because the offspring of the woman crushed the serpent's head. Now, what is the good news of this? Look at this. 
No matter how deep your sin goes, no matter how far you've run from God, no matter how much you're in a room right now like this and you're saying there's, there's some standard that I'm not living up to, the mercy and the grace that Jesus Christ offers you on the cross covers it all, all of it. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says, this wonderful sermon. He says, here is a matter of exceedingly great encouragement for all sinful and miserable creatures in the world of mankind to come to Christ. For let them be as sinful as they will and ever so miserable in that sin. Christ in the work of redemption is gloriously exalted above all their sin and all of their misery. No matter how deep your sin goes, Christ is exalted over all of it because he's crushed the serpent's head. And I just wanna exhort you, as we start off this summer of looking at these stories of the Old Testament, Christ has come. All of these stories are gonna point us to the ultimately, the, the offspring of the woman who would come and deal with our sin once and for all. We're gonna go through all kinds of stories of broken men and women and the mistakes they made and the ways that God still worked through their brokenness. And what we're gonna find in everyone is they always point towards Christ on the cross. Everyone, over and over, it points towards Jesus on the cross. And, and, and the hope for us is that you would experience that new birth that new birth of saying every single one of these stories is, is in some way resonating with my life. And I was made for that new birth of trusting in Jesus and following his law. If Adam and Eve had followed his law, they would have life to the full. And now God wants to restore, in part, what Adam and Eve had in the garden in your life. That's what the new birth is. He begins to restore that intimacy with him. He begins to restore what marriage could have been. The order of how things could have been in the garden, he begins to restore it in your life. And if your faith is in Jesus, you begin to experience that in this life, in the new birth, and you'll experience in fullness in the life to come. Today we've seen the allure of sin, the deceit of sin, God's judgment towards sin, and God's mercy through sin. And I think if there's one thing to just say at the end of this, it's this. Do not take sin lightly. Adam and Eve are the source of all the pain that we live in today. It all started because they broke his law. They took it casually, carelessly. And we run in the same the same way when we take his law casually. Do not take sin lightly. In sin, submit yourself to repentance. Submit yourself to God's law. And in Jesus Christ, find total forgiveness because the offspring of the woman has crushed the serpent's head. Will you pray with me? Father, help us to, to really know this, to believe it with our heart. God, I pray in this room right now for those who are stuck in cycles of sin that you would grant them the grace that is offered in Jesus Christ, that you have not went to the cross and rose, risen from the grave for us to be stuck in endless cycles of sin. That was, that was life when we were separated from God. That was, that was cycles of sin, separate, but separated from God, but now Christ has come, and in faith there is overcoming of sin. I pray that overcoming power in this room right now. God, I pray for those who feel like they can never get over their sinful habits and sinful rebellion to you, sinful attitudes, sinful conditions of the heart and of the mind. I pray that you would break that in Jesus' name right now. I pray that there would be new life in Jesus' name right now. God, that as you are bringing to mind right now sins that we hold on to, that you would crush them. I've seen you do that in my own life and in a lot of different areas. God, you offer us growth in those areas. I pray that you do it right now. In Jesus' holy name.